he did good, so she made it through. Uh, but thankful to have a lot of uh, family here as well, and uh, just really praise the Lord for, for a good week of celebration. So let's just uh, open our time in prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for community and family and fellowship and being able to gather together uh, to worship you, to uh, give back to you, uh, even in a small portion, all that you have given to us. Uh, but God, we, um, we are so thankful and in uh, and, and desire to uh, just esteem who you are as revealed to us through your word. And so, God, this morning, we just pray that as we once again open up your word, that our hearts would also be open to what you have for us. Uh, God, that um, your desire to meet with us uh, would be met with an openness of our own minds and our own spirit as we receive what you have from us. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to change our hearts to inform our minds, and to change our world. And so, Lord, we look forward uh, to what you have for us uh, this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I wonder uh, how many of you out there are good at getting in trouble. Anybody <laughs> want to own it? A few of you will own it right away. Like, you're just really good at getting in trouble. Yeah, there, I should mention that, too. There's a little bit of an insert in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, if that's helpful for you, you're welcome. It's kind of a fill in the blank. Um, you don't have to use it, obviously. If you want to make a paper airplane, uh, that's up to the people around you. Um, some of us are really good at getting in trouble, right? I have a lot of family here. If you talk to them afterwards, they'll tell you that I did not have that problem. Um, I'm just kidding. I got in trouble a lot as a kid, um, but that's kind of how it goes. Some of you are really good at getting out of trouble. Any of those in the room? You sneaky, conniving people that are just really good at sort of worming your way out of trouble. Uh, but trouble, you know, trouble is uh, part of life. It's part of growing up. It's something that we probably all have gotten into at one point in time or another. Um, but trouble is uh, also something that just goes with the experiences of life as well, doesn't it? I don't know if you remember uh, the old board game, Trouble. Uh, some of you, I've got a couple of pictures here, but some of you will remember the old version. It originally came back out, came out in back in the 1970s, I think, or around there. And um, the 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 tr game Trouble was a lot of fun uh, to play as a family. And I don't know if any of you ever have played that game, but you know, basically the premise of the game is you've got these like four pegs in your home, and you're trying to get these four pegs out of home, around the board, and into your like finished space or your sort of safe zone. And as you sort of, they have this weird thing that's in the middle, I don't know actually what it's called, I, I guess it's got a name for it, a popomatic in the middle. <laughs> Pastor Paul comes through for us again. Um, but yeah, it's, it, and so you, you know, smash this thing, it pops the dice up, you roll, you know, and you, you, you go around the board, and there's all kinds of different things, like every game, right, that can set you back, uh, that can actually take and move your peg back to home, and the goal is to get around the board as quickly as you can, and with as little trouble as possible, so that you can get into that home or, or safe zone, that finish, 
at the end. And once you're in there, you have to, remember, you have to get in there by exact number. So it's kind of a pain. But, but you, once you're in there, then you're kind of free from anybody else landing on your peg and sending you back home. And I was, I was thinking about this game because I think that sometimes this is how our lives can be. And that we can feel like as we move through our lives that we are just constantly dealing with different troubles. And there are things that will often come along and we feel like we're just getting stomped on by other people and it, it sets us back, it moves us back from where we want to be, it moves us back from where we know we probably should be. And sometimes we feel like we're never going to make it to the end. And we want to be in this place, right? We have this hope and this future with Christ in heaven, and we, we want to be there. We, we want to be in this safe element where trouble doesn't exist anymore, and, and yet we're on this journey where sometimes it feels like we're never really going to get there. And this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 14, and Jesus, I think, really uh, unpacks for us some ideas of how we deal with feeling troubled in our lives. And John 14 is uh, really a very familiar chapter. You've probably studied it and read it, read it multiple times. Uh, you're very familiar probably with John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's such a great apologetic in terms of how we understand that Jesus is the one and only way. There are not many ways to heaven, but there is one way to heaven. And, and so we look at that verse. But this morning, I want to, if you'll, if you'll allow me, uh, I want to just sort of pour through this text and look at a broader, a little bit broader context and maybe just suggest in that context uh, maybe a, just another thought about what Jesus is talking about as far as being troubled because it's not just John 14, 6 that is the gospel in many ways, but it is the essence of the context that really is about the gospel, and John is very aware of this, right? Like everything that he's writing is pointing to the gospel. And we, we know this because he says it in John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point. Everything that we do, everything that we talk about, everything that we read, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you can have life. Well, what, what do we know about trouble? We, we know that trouble is going to happen, right? Jesus said that you will have trouble in this world. We just read in the chapter before this that Jesus, as he was going into the, the Last Supper and as he was uh, sort of, you know, dealing with the fact that he was about to be betrayed by one of the 12, that it says that his heart was troubled, right? So there is some trouble that is going to happen because of who Christ is and what he means in our lives. But there is a different trouble, right? There is, a, there is a life trouble. There is circumstances. There are fears and insecurities and problems that we deal with that can cause a, trumbling, a troubling of our hearts. And, and we see this uh, with the disciples. And we'll, we'll kind of start there here in just a second. But there is a troubling that can happen in our, in our hearts. And it's not just troubles that we face, but it's an internal troubling that sort of shakes our faith. It shakes our, our beliefs. It shakes 
maybe even how we understand God's interaction with us in this world. It can shake, uh, you know, the values that we hold in our lives. It, it can cause troubling in our lives. And this, I think, is really the key element that Jesus is addressing here. And so I go back to John chapter 20, right? These are written so that you may believe, that you may trust, that you be, may be assured that you can, have a, you can treasure the reality of what? That Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the presence of God himself, God the Son among us, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, life is having a personal connection to God, and it includes not living in constant turmoil, not living in constant trouble. So here's, here's the distinction I want to make is that there's a difference between experiencing turmoil, experiencing trouble, right? We will all do that. You will do that. I'm, I will do that. That's a part of life. That's normal. We need to be real and authentic about the pain and the struggles that we experience. But to live in the fear of, the worry of that is not God's desire for us. So while it can be a reality for our lives, God has given us a way out. He's given us a perspective, a way of thinking that can overcome that turmoil and that trouble in our lives. The gospel then becomes the key element to that, right? Surprise, surprise. It's the gospel. The gospel is the answer for what we need in our lives. And the gospel is the presence of God. Ultimately, we can talk about the gospel in a lot of different ways, right? But the gospel is about being in the presence of God. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. John chapter 14, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me there. But this is the way it begins in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Isn't this interesting? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And why? Believe in God and believe also in me. In other words, he says, believe in God, believe in me. Believe, belief. And so in today's text, we see really what we're going to look at ultimately is that the, the work of the Trinity is happening in this text through the gospel to overcome our trouble, to give strength and peace, to live out the sacrifice of love that we saw in chapter 13. And Jesus does this by giving us five reasons that we can trust him because trust is both the key to the gospel and it is the key to daily living, to daily peace. Amen? It's the gospel. It's trusting God, not just for our eternity, but in our day-to-day. -day. And when trouble comes, trust empties quickly. And so we have to take up trust, belief, so that we can push back against the troubles of our day and we can look forward to the future that we have with Christ. When we think about the Trinity, uh, the Trinity is an interesting concept, right? You're not going to find the word Trinity in Scripture. And yet it is all throughout Scripture that there is this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of really good analogies for the Trinity. And in the same sense, there's a lot of really no good analogies for the Trinity, right? That's just kind of how analogies work sometimes. One of my favorites is a good cherry pie. Anybody like cherry pie? 
If you love cherry pie, you know that cherry pie should not come out like a block. It should come out messy, flowing out of the crust, right? When somebody cuts you a piece of cherry pie and puts it on your plate, it should flow out onto your plate if it's good cherry pie. Is it, amen? Anybody? Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page, otherwise this might not go well. But here's the thing about cherry pie, right? Cherry pie, uh, when, when somebody pulls a cherry pie out of the oven and they put it on the countertop and they go to cut it, they could take a knife, right? And they cut it into three big pieces, right? Because we like big pieces of pie. <laughs> I actually don't like pie. I'm just saying that for this illustration. So. <laughs> but you cut three big pieces of pie, right? And on the top, when you look at the top of the pie, what do you see? You, th- you see three distinct pieces of pie. But what do we all know is true underneath the crust? All of the cherry pie has just flown right back over where the knife has cut through. That underneath the crust, it is one cherry pie, right? And that there is this truth to how we understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That God has, in his great sovereignty and glory, chosen to reveal himself to us in three persons. But it is one God. And that there is an intimacy, a fluidity, and a connectivity that exists between God that really is beyond, in its fullest capacity, beyond our understanding. But God has chosen, in his mercy, to reveal himself in ways that we can handle. You know, if you want to say, in sort of bite sizes, right? That, That he has chosen to reveal himself in a way that we can understand, at least in our finite capability, until glory. And so we will see that relationship active in this passage. Let me say one more thing before we really dive in. I know this is a big introduction. Let me encourage you that as we walk through this passage, that it can become very easy, I think, to become disconnected. Because there's so much future aspect to this that we may experience trouble in our life, but when we have Christ, we have a hope And we have a future with him in heaven. But sometimes those truths, right, absolutely true, those truths can feel empty in the midst of our present trouble. And sometimes we can feel like, yeah, I know. I know, I get it, I've heard this, I know it's there, I know it's there. But frankly, it doesn't do me a lot of good now, today. And we can't say that as Christians, right? Sometimes like, well, you can't say that in church, but it's true. It's true that in those moments, we feel like this doesn't really help me. Telling me that something that's going to happen in 50 years or when I die is not really helping the present. And that is a myth because God has a message that pertains to our future that helps us in our present. I think that's obvious. And so as we walk through this passage, and if you start to feel disconnected, and if you feel like there's this distance in the reality of the hope that awaits us. Notice here that Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, switches gears. And you'll see that between the third and the fourth reason, there is a connection from our future hope to our current struggles and to our current problems. And so hang with me. Stay tuned in. Because you will see, you will feel, I'm confident of this, you will feel the switch as Jesus moves his language in this passage. So, John 14, 1 and 11. Let me put the bookends on it first. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. Now skip down to verse 11. It bookends this little section. In verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on the account of the works themselves. So what does Jesus say? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he says, believe in God, believe in me. Believe also in me. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on the account of the works. So believe, 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 believe. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, trust. Let's not overcomplicate the Christian walk. It is trusting in what Jesus says. It is in trusting what he has promised. It is in trusting all that he has done, is doing, and is promised to do. Belief, faith, trust. This is the opposite of letting our hearts be troubled. The point is not that we don't experience trouble, but to not live in a troubled way. Trust Jesus. And in trusting Jesus, we are trusting God. John chapter 12, verse 44, it says, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So you see this relationship that is happening. If you believe in Jesus, then you're believing in God. Jesus had just told them that at the Last Supper that he was going away. He had told them that they were not able to go with him, right? So here's Jesus, leader, teacher. He says, I'm leaving, and you can't come with. Is that a good reason for them to feel troubled? I think so. I think so. I think I would feel troubled if that were happening to me. And so he looks, uh, then look at what he tells Peter in chapter 13. We're going to back up. I know I'm hopping all over the place here, but back up. Chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter was told that Jesus was leaving And he couldn't even, you know, that he wouldn't even be able to make it one night without him. He had good reason to be troubled. And Jesus says, what? Trust me. Believe in me. Well, why? Why would that be possible? Why would Jesus say something like that? Why would Jesus say, hey, by the way, I'm leaving. You can't come. Just believe. Like, it it can feel very trite. But look at how Jesus responds in his explanation of this. Five reasons for Peter, for the other 10, remember Judas is gone, for you and I to trust God when our hearts are troubled. So the first one is this. Don't be troubled. Trust Jesus because the Father has all the room. All the room. Verses two and three of chapter 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Amen. Yeah, this is really cool. Like, he, he has this house, right? God's house is large. There are many rooms. Now, listen, everything, 
everything that happens is in the context of the father's house. That is to say that there is nothing outside of his reach. Isaiah 66 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you should build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It is the universe that is God's house. Everything is part of God's house. Sometimes we can hear this passage translated mansions, which maybe is is not quite the best translation here. It's this idea of rooms, or maybe even better to understand it, as places to live. You know, here's the thing, is that we have to be careful that we understand that heaven and a room is not the big prize at the end for us as believers, right? That's not what we're going for, is some sort of room or some sort of even place. The reward is a dwelling place. It's a dwelling with our Savior, And so there's two key distinctions with this. One is there is a place that is specifically for you. Have you ever thought about that? It's not just a place. It's not just a room that is there that you're going to be able to use. But it is a room that has specifically been created for you. God's nature is personal. And what is fantastic about this is that he won't run out of space. You know, you don't have to worry about that. It is spacious. But the room isn't a random space. It's been specifically designed as a dwelling that was created just for you and I. And so in this, we see the personal nature and connection that God desires and has with each one of his children, which really leads us to the second, designate, the second distinction for this reason of trust. And that is that as believers, as people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, and taken him as our personal savior, that as believers, you and I are children, not guests. Have you ever thought about that? Like, we, we are not just guests in this universe, in some community or church of God. We are children of God. And God treats his children uniquely and special. This is God's house. It's not a hotel. <laughs> Children live in a home, guests just pass by. Maybe you've taken a vacation this summer, or maybe you have a trip that's coming up. Vacations uh, can be fun, they can be relaxing, they can be adventurous or even luxurious. We can disconnect, we can unwind, we can sleep in, uh, we can, you know, see family, we can see sights, we can just simply close our eyes. Vacations might involve a good book, a a sunny beach, or a natural wonder, or a historical reminder, or maybe even just good meals. But what is true of every vacation? For most of us, it's good to be home, right? That we can can live, and and you can go to resorts and hotels and fancy vacations, but there is something transcendent about home. And this is the thing. Heaven is not just some resort that we're going to go hang out at as guests. But heaven is home. And it is a place that's going to be, that's going to be good. But there's a second reason that Jesus talks about here. He says, don't be troubled. Trust Jesus because a place is being prepared for you. Now, this is super interesting to me. 
But look in verses 3 through 6. It says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. We're going to come back to that. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting to me here that twice Jesus says that he is going to prepare a place for us. I wonder what you think that maybe means. Do you think that heaven is under construction? After driving through Chicago a couple times, I sure hope not. (laughs) Does it mean that a place of perfect fellowship is somehow in disrepair, in need of improvement? I don't think that that's what it means at all. In fact, consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, for you from the foundation of the world. So that doesn't make sense. The place has been prepared since the foundation of the world. In his sovereignty, this place, this room, has been prepared for us. And so what does it mean? This dwelling place is near the heart of God and has been, in one sense, designed and suitable for redeemed sinners from before the creation of the world. So what needs to be prepared? In one sense, I think there's kind of two parts to this. In one sense, what was not ready, what was not yet prepared, is the way to get to your room, the way to get your room in God's presence. We might even say this, and I hope this doesn't sort of steer you the wrong direction, but you might even say this, that your room was locked. It was unenterable. It's not a word, but it was not able to be entered, right? At this point, when Jesus is speaking, sin had not yet been atoned for. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is about to be slain. The wrath of God, the condemnation, the curse of sin is still unsatisfied. And Jesus is about to become the curse for us to bear our condemnation and endure the bruising of the Father. Death is yet to be defeated in this context. And Jesus is about to give his life and take it back again from the jaws of death. And so in this way, just like we would say that our room was locked, we would also say that the cross then becomes the door and Jesus becomes the key. Every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is about to be removed in the next three days. He confirms this in verses four through six. Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you and as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you get there. When he says that he goes to prepare a place for you, he means that he is going to open the way, that he is the way. He confirms the truth because he is the truth. He purchases life because he is the life. 
And I think this is where so many other religions get it wrong is because they think of heaven as just this place and Jesus is one method that if you believe in, but there are multiple ways to get to heaven, but they've missed the reality that heaven is the presence of Jesus. And so without Jesus, there is no heaven. So you can't have multiple ways to something that exists outside of a person when that person is Christ himself. I hope that makes sense. In this way, Jesus meets our deepest desires, right? He is the way, our desire for knowledge. He is the truth. He meets our desire for assurance. He is the life. He meets our desire for intimacy. There's a lot more that could be said about verse 6. It's a powerful verse. But to stay in context, let me move on here. The death of Jesus makes our room not only available but suitable and certain, certain for his children. But also perhaps in a second sense, in which things are not yet ready and in need of being prepared, Jesus continues this thought in, in, with, this, in this, with this line of reasoning. Don't be troubled, but number three, trust Jesus because he will get you there. He will get you there. Verses three and then verse seven. Again, Help me out here. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit. Verse 3, verse 7. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Do you, do you get what the disciples, like he's saying to the disciples, from now on, you have seen the Father. You've seen him. It's like a good cherry pie, right? <laughs> so what does this mean? Well, Jesus shifts here. He shifts from a place to a person. It's interesting here, right? That all of a sudden now, we're not talking about a place. We're talking about a presence, a person. And this might be the key phrase in this passage here in verse 3. I will take you to myself. Where, where are we going? Where, where, are they, where are they being promised to be taken to? To himself, to his own presence. It shifts the focus from this place to a person. Where Jesus is, there is heaven. What is the essence of heaven then? The essence of heaven is the immediate presence of Jesus. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, the essence of what he is saying is, I go this night, right? This is on the precipice of his death. I go this night through death for you. And and I'll go through Sunday morning. Probably didn't say that, right? But Sunday morning, I will go through Sunday morning out of death for you so that I myself might be your living dwelling place. So I'm going to go into death and out of death. Why? Not just so that you can have a room, but so that you may be with me. Jesus is our room. He is our room. Consider this. Jesus is your room in the Father's house. At this point, Jesus has not yet prepared to receive the disciples there yet. Right? He hasn't died. He hasn't, he, he's doing the work. From an eternal, sovereign perspective, it's done. Right? But in this context, it is about to happen. 
He must die. He must rise. He must be glorified. Jesus says, therefore, my beloved disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Trust me that I am coming for you. I come and I will take you. And trust me because the dwelling that I have prepared for you is my crucified, risen, and glorified self. Don't be troubled. I will come and I will take you to, not just a room, but to myself. The text here is not really focusing on the second coming is being about going to heaven. That, that Jesus is going to, that is the second coming. He's going to come and he's going to take us. But that's not the context here. The, the context seems to be, to me anyway, that what he's talking about is a reunion with Christ. It, it is the coming together in relationship with Christ again. And so Jesus can comfort us with this. And so that's three. These comforts are wonderful. And yet at the same time, they can feel very far away. Maybe at death, maybe at the second coming. We don't know what God has for each one of us. But you might be sitting there thinking, you know, what about what I'm facing today? It's happening right now. Maybe you're dealing with some questions about, you know, what to do with your children and what is best for them. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage that is broken and unaffectionate. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe you don't have a job or you just feel really unstable at work. Maybe you're just feeling lonely or a little bit lost and a little bit of like a sense of without hope. So this is where Jesus takes this surprising turn in this passage. Reason number four, he says, don't be troubled, but trust Jesus because the Father is with you now. Verses seven through 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, I can't read that verse without just being blown away. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, notice that, we don't think about that a lot, right? The Father dwelling in Jesus, the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Man, this is a mind-boggling and amazing passage of what Jesus says. And if we pause for a second and really think about what he is saying, we begin to realize how little we understand of the Trinity and the relationship. But at the same time, how real and just amazing that relationship is. If you count them up six times, Jesus says basically the same thing. That he and the Father are so uniquely and intimately one that his presence is the presence of the Father. That his presence is the presence of the Father. 
Let me walk through this real quick with you. You can try to keep up if you want. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. The back half of 7. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Beginning of verse 9. In response to Philip's request to see the father, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Verse, the second part of verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The fifth one is in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the sixth one is in verse 11. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Why is he so repetitive? Why is he just drilling this in and in and in with Phil? Right? Because it's hard to understand. But it is so crucial and so important. And here's why, because it's in response to Philip's question. Show us the Father, right? And then it's enough. Well, here's the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus is enough for death and resurrection. Is it enough? Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is enough for your hope and security in your death and your future resurrection? Do you believe that? I hope so. He's saying to Philip and to the others, he is here. He's saying, Philip, look. Like, see, I'm, I'm standing right in front of you. Like, this is as good as it's going to get. There, there is no future revelation of the Father that's going to be different. I am the full, radiant expression of the Father standing physically right in front of you. It's enough. But maybe one step farther than that. Jesus is enough for today. Philip says that he wants to see the Father now. Not just someday, right? He's like, show us the Father now. And he says that if he, he's able to see the Father, that it will be enough. It will be sufficient. It's the same word here that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It will be enough. It will be sufficient Jesus is saying, here it is. It's me. I and the Father are one. So let me ask you this question. Is God here now? Is the Father present now in this room, in our lives? Or is it just something that we look forward to? That is in the future. Well he. Kind of nails this shut. I think in some ways. In terms of argumentation. With this last one. He concludes. This section. And, and you'll have to kind of bear with me. And, and again we're going to travel a little bit. But you'll see the connection. But this is what he says. Don't be troubled. Trust Jesus because he. right, Not just the father. Trust Jesus because he is with you now. And always, not just at his return. So how is it that as Jesus is ascending into the clouds after his death, after his resurrection, back to the Father, after his resurrection, he stands before the disciples, and he, as he's ascending into the clouds, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Does, it, does that seem wrong? Like, you're leaving don't say that you're with us always as you're leaving. Like, that doesn't make any sense. 
But it does, right? In order to see this, we need to skip down. Is that okay? We, we need to give some context here. So we're going to skip down to actually verses 16 through 18 to sort of put the close to this. But look in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Why? Why? How, how in the world would they know him who hasn't even been sent yet? You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells. Who's dwelling with him? It's, it's Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Notice what Jesus says here about the helper, the Holy Spirit. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So will be future in you, dwells present. He dwells with you. Jesus is saying that I am with you now physically and be, will be in you, in you spiritually when the Spirit comes. Listen, listen, in case you, you know, maybe you have questions about this, but listen to how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in the Spirit of Christ and Christ himself in Romans chapter 8. Just, just listen and rest in this, right? This is so good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, Christ himself. Paul 8, Romans 8. 9 through 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, spirit of God, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see this? He uses these terms interchangeably. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ himself. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are one. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit came, Jesus came. The Spirit of God dwells in you. That is the Spirit of Christ. This, this is not just the second coming, as glorious as that will be, but this was now for them. This is now for you and I. He has gone away physically, precisely so that he can be near to all of his own, not just the 11. He has not left us as orphans. He has come to you and to I. And here's one of the cooler parts. The presence of Jesus is in the omnipotent helper. Right now, listen, right now, Jesus is more interested in and he is more caring about exactly where you're at than you could possibly imagine. He is more interested in and more caring about your parenting, your marriage, your singleness, your failing health, your job, your loneliness, your hurt, your pain. He is more caring on this day than you can possibly imagine. Jesus did not send us this idea of help, right? 
that praise God that he did not send us an observer. He sent us a helper, right? He's not here to just observe things and, and maybe feel bad about things, but he has come to help, to offer comfort and peace and answers for our lives. The presence of Jesus is not just future, but the full embodiment of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, is present in our day, in our lives. So when he says, believe, believe, trust me, believe, let not your hearts be troubled, believe. It's not just believing that something is eventually going to be taken care of, because it will. It's not just believing that there might be some sort of hope that exists out in the future, because it does. But it is believing that Jesus is active and living in your heart, in your life, right now, if you've received him by faith. This is the good news of the gospel. It is not some place. It is not just simply future. It is a present healing and presence that we get to live in and out and through and over and with and whatever preposition you want to throw in. There were uh, two little children and uh, they rode a school bus in a really big city every day. And they lived next door uh, to a really big church that was in this very crowded neighborhood. The mother worried that one day something might go wrong and they might get lost. And so she wrote down their address and directions and gave it to each child with instructions. And this is what she wrote. She said, if you get lost, show this to someone on the bus. Or I'm sorry, show this to some adult. After several weeks, as you can imagine, the unthinkable happened. Somehow the children were put off the bus in the wrong neighborhood. Things were worse than they realized in that they did not have the slip of paper with their address and directions. And so the little boy began to cry, and the little girl was trying to think about what to do, and then all of a sudden she got this burst of inspiration. And she grabbed her little brother by the hand, and bravely walked several miles through city streets, turning corners with great deliberateness. When she finally made it home, her mother was nearly out of her mind. She said, how did you find your way back? And she, she asked, and the little girl said, we live next to this big church with a great big cross on top. I just walked toward the cross, and I made it home. For us as believers, that's what it is, is that we walk towards the cross. But it means that we believe, that we trust, not just in something future, although that is extremely important, but we trust in the present, that Jesus is with you. The same Jesus that performed those miracles, the same Jesus that walked with the 12, the same Jesus that went to the cross and died for our sins, the same Jesus that defeated death and rose again, the same Jesus that conquers the gates of hell, that Jesus is with you 
now. Not just in some goofy spirit form like sometimes we try to think about it, but in its real and powerful and supernatural way. Jesus is with us. It's not just some sort of conscience, but it is the presence of God. It is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit present in our lives. Let me close us in our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would just, uh, God, that you would just kind of tear away whatever is not from you. Uh, God, that our hearts would be rendered only to your truth. And God, that you would uh, uplift, that you would sustain, that God, you would reinvigorate us in our times of trouble. God, we thank you for your presence in our lives. And God, we just pray for those that are here this morning, those maybe watching online, who, whose hearts are troubled. God, we, may we believe in you. May we trust you. Not in just some future sense, but God, in the present reality of your presence with us. And so God, we give you the glory. We recognize your supreme authority. We recognize your sovereignty over everything that is going on in our lives. And God, we rest. We rest because you are a helper who walks with us, who lives with us, that dwells in us, and has given us a dwelling in your house. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we close.